Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. I'm honored to be in your ear. And this interview you're about to hear is with Jim Shaw. For the uninitiated, he is a keyboard player, music engineer, and a songwriter. He was the business manager keyboardist and band leader with Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, the group of country music legend Buck Owens. He keeps the legacy of Buck Owens alive with Buck Owens Productions. Jim Shaw, thank you very much for making the time to speak with me. Very much my pleasure. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. You're originally from uh, Iowa? Born in Esterville, Iowa, correct. But uh, we moved out, and uh, when I was about six years old, my family moved out to California, like many other people in the Midwest did, and about 52, moved to the uh, seaside Monterey, and then a year later to Fresno, California, which is in the valley uh, with Bakersfield. The Central Valley of, of California is where a lot of, uh, a lot of people moved uh, during the Dust Bowl. It's kind of the, the agriculture part of California. Tell me about the music that you remember most from growing up. Oh, when I grew up, I, I listened, my mom and dad would listen to big band and things like that. And uh, by the time I uh, got into rock and roll, I was probably 14 or 15 years old, like most kids that age, and uh, started playing a little bit uh, on the piano and on the bass and just in a little local, uh, or my, actually a high school band. And uh, then uh, the Beatles came along in the mid-60s and uh, turned everything upside down wonderfully. And I got into that kind of music. And uh, it wasn't until uh, I, I started, uh, I wanted to start playing in the clubs. So when I wanted to go to college, I wanted some way to make a living. And someone said, if you want to work six nights a week, you should play country music. Because that's, that's where all the action is on the, and in these bars that have bands every single night of the week. And I had not been exposed to country music. My mom and dad didn't listen to it, but uh, I had no preconceptions or prejudice and uh, gave it a listen and enjoyed it. And uh, in fact, did start working with a a local group. And uh, uh, it was very nice of them to let me play piano with them because uh, I uh, didn't know a thing about country music and (laughs) had to learn on the bandstand. But uh, they allowed me to do that. And I kind of worked my way up to the local Fresno, California music scene. So as you were exposing yourself to this country music, were there any particular artists that you exposed yourself to or that you, you in particular listened into? Well, uh, specifically one thing that was interesting to a piano player is there was a monstrous hit at about that time called, uh, when I started playing country, called Last Date by Floyd Kramer. And uh, that Floyd Kramer type style piano was pretty much the epitome of country piano. And uh, so I got, I have a pretty decent ear, so I got a copy of the record and uh, tediously learned how to copy every little note on that record. And then I took those licks and learned how to do them in all the different keys. And that was, that particular song was my training uh, for uh, country music keyboard. Nowadays, you would have gone on YouTube and found hundreds of people willing to show you 
how to do it. But at that time, there was no other way to do it. And uh, I did. I loved the music of the Four Four Shuffles and Ray Price and uh, those things. And and I did was very much aware of Buck Owens. He'd had at that time he had the song Buckaroo, the instrumental, and he had Tiger by the Tail and Act Naturally and and those things. And uh, I, w- I was very aware of him and uh, hadn't thought much of the idea that he was 100 miles away down in Bakersfield at the bottom of the valley. But he uh, he and uh, a year or two later, Merle Haggard were making a lot of noise down there. So that was kind of exciting knowing they were that close. You just mentioned Floyd Kramer and that great, great song, Last Date. Could you tell the listeners maybe about some of the other piano players that you admire and maybe have had an influence on your playing? Well, uh, again, uh, my piano playing was very basic and uh, in the rock and roll thing was a lot of pounding and, and, uh, you know, just knowing the, knowing the three chords. And, and uh, I, uh, I was homeschooled in, in a sense. And, and uh, there was, you know, buy music for this kind of a thing. So I, I was listening to at that point, I started listening to country music and didn't know who I was listening to in these Nashville musicians. There was a guy named Argus, Argus, Argus Robbins, who was known as Pig, Pig, Pig Robbins. And uh, he's a blind piano player that played on most of the country records out of Nashville. He was on the A team, and I was obviously influenced a lot by him. And then, of course, Charlie Rich. Although I think Argus Pig Robbins actually paid piano on Charlie Rich's big hits behind closed doors, although uh, Charlie was a decent piano player. But, uh, yeah, I was was just kind of, uh, I used to call it, you know, you'd learn a new lick. You're putting tools in your toolbox. You, you learn how to play this little lick and then that little lick. And, and uh, when you know 15 licks and start stringing them together, you uh, it, everybody can kind of see what you're doing. They say, okay, I see what he's doing. <laughs> it's those things over and over. It's not until you get hundreds and then thousands of those things in your toolbox and know when to pull them out do it, does it finally start becoming seamless and uh, you start sounding a little more professional and like you have a style. But everybody borrows from everybody else in any kind of music. And like you started out with the question, who was I influenced by? I I, I think I just, just kept, anytime I hear something that was good, I'd, I'd add it to that. I was in college. I was very busy doing this at night, going to college during the day and, and uh, didn't have, a lot of time to sit around and listen to a lot of music at that time, like I do nowadays. But uh, I'd say it was more of a practical matter of just uh, trying to uh, add to my to my licks. Can you tell us about the first time you ever went to Bakersfield, California? Well, it's uh, I've told the story before, and uh, it's kind of like a B movie scene. It's uh, it's really the, the the epitome of right place at the right time. But in Fresno, I had eventually got to the point where I had my own band and was doing very well at a place called the Nashville West. And we actually had our own local TV show. So I was a big star in Fresno, which isn't worth very much. But <laughs> I decided that, hey, uh, Buck Owens has built a new recording studio in Bakersfield. I've heard about it and it's available to rent, and maybe I could take my band down there, we could record an album, sell it, 
using our TV show, sell it uh, to the club we're working at, Natural West, and make a little extra money and spread the, spread our uh, music out a little bit. So uh, I uh, went down on a weekday to Bakersfield to uh, check out the recording studio, get some brochures, get some rates, see what it looked like, and that was my only intention. It happened to be there the day Buck was recording. And uh, he, at that time, did not have a piano player in the band. He always you would use somebody to, from the outside to play piano on his sessions because he wanted him on the session. And he had been working in Los Angeles with the guy, session players there, but he had just started in Bakersfield, did not have anybody locally available, and was trying out a guy named David Frizzell, who later on became a country music star himself with a couple of hit records. But uh, he he supposedly knew a little piano, uh, rhythm piano, and Buck was trying him out on that session that day. And it was not going well. It was a kind of a tricky little song with a lot of weird chords in it and then a modulation to the key of G flat. And it, as a piano player, it was ugly <laughs> and tough. And uh, they, there's no printed music. You have to be able to uh, write a little shorthand chart down and quickly learn the song after two or three times through and play it without a mistake. And he was failing and Buck was getting frustrated. And somebody told Buck that there was a piano player from Fresno out front. And so he came and got me. He went through two or three sets of doors, came to the front lobby. It scared me to death. I mean, because he was a huge star. He was like Garth Brooks at that time. He was, he was a big star. And there he was right in front of me. And he said, are you a piano player? And I said, "Uh, yes, sir. And he said, can you play that song? I didn't know what he was talking about because I hadn't, I didn't know what was going on way back in that studio. There's no way. And I'm not sure why he thought I would know <laughs> what he thought I was hearing. But anyway, I went in there and uh, they played the song through for me. And I I was terrified to tell you the truth. I thought, wow, this thing, wow, this is tricky. And I tried to uh, keep track of what was going on, when it modulated, what it did. And he said, are you ready to do one? And I said, okay. And uh, I got through it. And then uh, he he sent David Frizzell home. He says, I'm sorry it didn't work out. I'll pay you for the recording session. He said to me, he says, can you stay for the rest of the recording session? I said, yes, I can. Yes, sir. And uh, I did my first Buck Owens recording session. Right place at the right time. <laughs> now, was this your first time in a recording studio, like a, a real record? I had played little in studios in Fresno. Not to that caliber, but enough enough to, to to kind of know what to do, you know how to you know keep quiet and and it's it's interesting when you're playing in a recording studio as a musician. It's totally different than being on stage when you're you're getting ready to record a song, especially in those days when everybody's recording at the same time, and it was very difficult to re- to fix a mistake. You basically had to do it over again as you're playing through the song and running it down. And this is this, this this held true for years afterwards. When you're playing the song down, you, you, there's no big worries. You know, you're you're trying this, you're trying that. You're just having a good time playing it, and you're you're not afraid of taking a chance. And you're doing all these neat little licks and say, hey, that's kind of cool, and trying to come up with what this record's going to sound like. As soon as that red light goes on, like okay, let's go ahead and make a take. Everybody becomes careful human nature, right? You don't want to be the guy 
<laughs> we got to start over because Jim Shaw screwed it up. You know, we were almost done, and he made a big old mistake. Tried to play this little lick and messed it up. So you pull back. You hunt. You you know you start cringing and playing very careful and very much on the defensive. And uh, <laughs> that's probably the difference between somebody who's a terrific recording musician and somebody who's just a, a good one. Uh, the ones that can just go out there and, and go for it and come up with these fresh, clever ideas and not be intimidated. And that's why, that's how you become on the A-team and, uh, and uh, a serious recording musician. And uh, not, that's a small percentage. And, and I don't know if I'm one of those or not. I, even after the decades that I did it, I, I'm sure I still, uh, I'm probably one of the timid ones. Well, aside from, as you said, here's this man who's a big star. Aside from that, what was your first impression of Buck Owens when you were eyeball to eyeball with him? That he was a, he was a very uh, demanding boss. Uh, he had high expectations of everybody. And he, uh, he's interesting, though, because, you know, as I soon was working for him full time, uh, I realized he's the kind, the kind of guy that, that those high expectations really made you the best you could be. He never asked you to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He was the hardest worker in the room, got up earlier, stayed up, worked later, and, uh, and he expected everybody else to be just like him. And uh, so uh, if you could handle that, and a lot of people couldn't, you know, they drifted away or were set free. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, he, uh, yeah, he had high expectations of everybody, and I could see that quickly. And... It's interesting that recording session I happen to know because there's a the track there's a a date on the box of the tape of that song that was recorded that day was March eighth, uh, nineteen seventy. So uh, a little while back, uh, it was fifty years ago. How about that? And then in June first, which is not too far away, was that about two three weeks, I guess. June first will be my fiftieth year as, as the, signing up as a buckaroo because that's when he called me in and asked me to join the Buckaroos. So uh, 50 years, it's been a long, long ride being in the same place. Absolutely. What about when you saw Buck Owens interact with fans of his? What was that experience like? Well, Buck, again, being a hard, hard worker, he, he considered being a country star a, a privilege and that you had to earn it and you had to work hard and not only uh, fans, but disc jockeys. I mean, he treated them well. They had his full attention and he uh, would get up early in the morning uh, in any city we were playing in and go and do the radio shows. And anytime he had a chance, he would do these interviews. And if uh, somebody wanted an autograph and, and wanted a chance to, to see them, if he could do it, he, he was there for him. He was not the kind of person that uh, hid away or felt that he was, you know, too good for that and past that. He he, he even had a song called "It Takes People Like You to Make People Like Me." It was a big hit of his, and it was a in tribute to the fans that that bought the records and and uh, put him where he was. It may be difficult, but can you pick a favorite Buck Owens tune? Well, my. You have to realize that for decades, uh, 
I traveled the band and played thousands of concerts and and every night I played Act Naturally and Together Again and Crying Time and you know Love's Gonna Live Here and and uh, they're sort of like on cruise control, right? And so I would so what happens is that you don't pick your favorites out of that generally it's because it's something that you don't play very often and that the song for me would be uh, Who's Gonna Mow Your Grass which was kind of a jazz waltz kind of a thing and very different, very unique. We hardly ever play it live and so when we did I really enjoyed it. On the record we played harpsichord on it <laughs> a little lick but a lot of the songs that we recorded in the studio that were hits, we didn't play that often on stage because you know, on a show that's an hour long or something like that, you know, you you can only play 20, 25, 30 songs. Buck had 21 number one hits and a whole bunch of top tens. So you, you couldn't play all the songs on the show that he had that were hits. So uh, he had to pick and choose. Tell me about how you began to start writing songs yourself. How did that begin? Uh, well, Buck, Buck was very generous. Within the organization, he, 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 uh, anytime he saw that somebody, you know, wanted to, uh, to get into something else, he would encourage it. And, uh, uh, if, if you wanted to write a song and bring it in, it, you, you didn't get any special precedence over other uh, songwriters. Uh, uh, he he would try to go with the best song he could get, uh, and and I'm not talking about him as much. We had a whole stable of acts at that time. We had Susan Ray, his son Buddy Allen. We had Tony Booth. We had Lawanda Lindsay later, and and Kenny Husky, and and the Bakersfield Brass, and of course Don Rich put out his own things. And uh, we we had a lot of recording going on, lots of things. Uh, people, the Hagers, we did them, and uh, we also did. Uh, we recorded the country people for the Lawrence Welk show, like Ava Barber, and uh, cause down there in, at Lawrence Welk, they didn't know how to record country, so we did them for them. So there was a lot of material needed, and uh, Buck encouraged us to write, bring in songs, and uh, you weren't treated special, like I said, but uh, if you practiced at it and were good at, good at it, and the songs that we did in those times were, were basic, simple songs. That's the kind of stuff he liked to do. I mean, if you look at Tiger by the Tail or the, the songs like this, there's not a lot of lyrics. They're not terribly complicated or clever, but they have to have a great hook to them. And, you know, kind of a, so you can reel people in with them. And the fact that, you know, that people want to hear the song again. And he was good at that kind of a song, very commercial. So as somebody like me who would, would analyze what he did and what he liked, it was easy for me to say, okay, this is the place to be and this is the kind of song to write. Later on, of course, I spread out and, and did different things. You've, I think you might have already talked to Larry Bastian, and, and uh, I met Larry Bastian back in the, I'm guessing, mid-70s and uh, signed him as a songwriter. And uh, I was running the publishing company by then, and... Uh, started and wrote a lot of songs with Larry, but Larry was a terrific ballad songwriter and uh, just one of the finest songwriters out there. And uh, I learned a lot working with him, of course. With Larry Bastian, did you find that there was a, a particular way that you all wrote together? What was it like writing with Larry Bastian? Yeah, a lot of people used to ask, uh, oh, okay, now one of you does the music and one does the words, kind of like the thing back in the... Uh, the old uh, day of, uh, you know, big band and stuff like that. There was a lyricist and a song and a music writer. But uh, no, in country in general, and specifically by us, 
you get together, you just sit there, and you you work through the song. You come up with an idea, and you knock ideas back and forth. He might be holding a guitar. I might have the piano in front of me. And you're just trying this, and you're trying that. until And you uh, have a, a relationship where you can brainstorm, and you don't. nobody makes fun of each other. Nobody says, well, that's the stupidest line I ever heard. You don't do that because it's understood that I'm not saying this song, this line I just threw out should be in the song. It's like, what if it went in this direction? You know what I'm saying? Just, just uh, how about something like this? And the guys, and then his response would be, uh, yeah, but what if you did it like this? Well, what if the twist was here? And then you take that and you jump to the, yeah, but why not add this word in there, make it a double rhyme? And you bat it back and forth like a, you know, like a tennis ball. And nobody makes fun of the other person, unless you're old friends enough that you have to throw a dig in every now and then. But you, you, you have to have a relationship with the person you write with. And I know this nowadays songs written in Nashville are pretty much written by a committee, it looks like. They have, everybody goes to appointments, goes in, has a songwriting appointment two or three times a day, and they put different writers, and they're looking for people that will click. And it's got, I don't know, it just almost feels computerized. It's Each song has four, five, six names on it, and really different. It, that's the way it turned into, but certainly wasn't like that back in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, uh, I kind of I'm glad I'm not involved today. I know that uh, music's changing, and uh, a lot of the country music that's being played today is not something that I enjoy listening to, and I have no problem with that. I know when Buck Cohen's came out, everybody thought he sounded too rock and roll, too many, too much drums, you know. <laughs> they wanted to listen to, you know, Hank Snow and and uh, the people before him. So uh, it's it's uh, it's something that has to move on. I'm hoping we have another resurgence in classic classical country music, though. I'm waiting for that, but it's it's uh, it's interesting how you uh, you write songs and all of a sudden realize that the, thing, the music sort of drifted away from these things we're writing. There's not a lot of ballads anymore. So, what is Larry Bastian really like? Oh, Larry's an absolute super guy. He's a He's a trained, he's a biologist. He used to work for the uh, Visalia, or maybe Tulare, I'm sorry, county as a biologist. And he was out in the outdoors because he was tracking squirrels that carried the plague and doing a lot of interesting things. But he's Basque, a great family guy, beautiful, wonderful wife, Myrna, and great kids. And uh, just the sweetest man you'd ever want to meet. And just what a talent putting words together. Just just a great guy. And uh, I miss having him visit because of the uh, the virus. He's hunkered down in, at home, and he's in his 80s, and he needs to. He needs to protect himself. And so, uh, But, yeah, he's one of my favorite people. There's a song that you wrote with him. I want to I get the story behind this song. It's been quite successful. Tom Jones did a version of it. Called "This Ain't Tennessee." Yes, yes, sir. And I have to, uh, you know, uh, any song a lot of times is weighted towards one writer more than the other. He might bring in the idea and have a whole bunch of it figured out, and then need somebody, the other guy, to help him complete it. And you know, and and Larry and I are like many teams; we don't keep score. But I'll tell you right now that he came, he came in with the idea and a lot of the important lines written and and. Uh, that was that was a 
I was very happy to get involved in that song because it turned out to be a big song recorded by Janie Fricke and, and Sammy Smith, as well as, like you said, Tom Jones. Eddie Arnold recorded it. And, of course, Garth Brooks. That didn't, that didn't hurt. But uh, it's, uh, it's a song that uh, People Magazine did a little... I think it was when Janie Fricke did it. They, they reviewed her album in People Magazine and mentioned that song and said it's... Uh, Always a cut, never a hit. Kind of like the the thing about a bride. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. <laughs> I think it was kind of a dig, <laughs> but 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 the song never has been a has been a hit. Although it's been recorded a ton of times, so we always hope. And we know that Garth and uh, and uh, Trisha Yearwood recorded it as a duet a couple times, but never felt they got the right spark on it and didn't release it. So you know, we always kind of hope that uh, they'll do something. Meanwhile, we've written many other songs that Garth is sitting on, and and uh, we're hoping he records. But uh, all you do is kind of send him into that dark pit and and kind of forget about him because there's no way you can nudge people either down the road it's going to surface and it's going to get recorded, or it's going to sink without a trace. It's it's a it's a it can be a depressing business. You better love to write songs because if you're doing it just for the money, you might be sorely disappointed. <laughs> well, on the note of Garth Brooks, there have been a lot of great, great artists who have mentioned that how much they revered Buck Owens. When Bob Dylan was at that Music Cares thing, and he he was mentioning. He he was going all over the place talking about all different types of music. But he mentioned Buck Owens in particular. Were you aware of Bob Dylan's admiration for Buck Owens? Did you know that? Well, I, I sort of. It's, it's it's interesting. I remember I remember that uh, somebody not me, but somebody did a recording session with his son uh, Bob Dylan's son. I'm blanking on his name. Jacob. Thank you, Jacob. Was doing a, a recording session. And said that he remembers growing up for many years, all his years growing up, that on Saturday night they had to have everything done and scheduled dinner so they could all sit down and watch Hee Haw. So that gave me an idea right there that Bob Dylan was paying attention. And uh, yeah, Buck, I think Buck got a lot of attention from people like that and admiration that you wouldn't expect. Like uh, one of those guys in ZZ Tops, he had a guitar that on the fretboard, and it was inlaid, it said, Think Buck. Uh, Jerry Garcia many times said that he is a huge fan and of the, the Grateful Dead. And and, uh, and I think it was that Buck's music was kind of ahead of the time, at that time had the drums and stuff. And, and they also realized that Buck was a bit of a rebel, and he was an innovator. And I think that strikes other entertainers, you know, and strikes a chord with him. I think that's why a lot of acts like Bob Dylan might have played uh, paid compliments to him. What's your opinion of the album Dwight Sings Buck that Dwight Yoakam recorded? No, oh, I loved it. I, I, you know, he put he put his own twist on it, and but I, I was uh, I've got one autographed uh, by Dwight that says, "Hey Jim, uh, thank you for being there for, for Buck for all those years." And I was very touched by that. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed the album very much, and uh, I thought it was a great tribute. You know, he, he did his own take on some of them, and I thought that was extra cool, <laughs> his interpretation. 
I'm also hoping you can tell us about you being around Ringo Starr. Well, that was a thrill for me. I, the Beatles were a huge part of my, uh, you know, my musical excitement when I was a teenager, and uh, I think I was a senior in high school when they came out, and and that was sort of the holy grail. I mean, meeting one of the Beatles would have been great. And so, Buck, Buck was gonna. We were gonna do a thing up, a thing called the Bammies. The Bammies are uh, the Bay Area Music Awards up in San Francisco every year, and. And uh, people, a lot of the San Francisco people there, like Huey, Huey Lewis and the News and uh, and the Grateful Dead and, and uh, uh, Chris Isaacs and, uh, you know, uh, Creedence Clearwater, all those people are up there in, the, in Northern California. And uh, Ringo Starr was supposed to be in California at that time, and somebody had the great idea of, hey, what don't Buck and, and Ringo get together and do Act Naturally at the Grammys? Because they, the Ringo sang Act Naturally, on a, in 1966, I think, or so, on a Beatles album, covered Buck's, Buck's hit of it. And so that didn't work. Ringo couldn't make it. But we, as soon as we had the idea, we started pressing it. We got a hold of Ringo's manager and uh, finally eventually connected with Ringo and set up a recording session at Abbey Road Studio in London. And Studio B, where the, where the Beatles recorded at Abbey Road, and I got to produce produce it, so I was in hog heaven. We spent a week there in London, and uh, I remember the first day Ringo drives his own car into this little gravel parking lot, comes walking on in, no no entourage, no valet or driver, just comes driving in and shakes hands all around and and uh, starts chatting, and we just had a great time. Recorded the song, and that didn't take that much time, but then we just hung out a lot. I got it. A wonderful picture sitting next to him and in the commissary, and uh, he was a good guy. Told us all sorts of Beatles stories and a lot of stories, musician to musician, as a band playing live and saying that you know when when they were playing live on that first American tour at those concerts, he says at first they thought it was hilarious that the girls wouldn't stop screaming and they'd start playing Happy Birthday and Jingle Bells and they'd play anything they want up there. Nobody could even tell. You know, they had no no great sound systems, uh, no big amplifiers in those days. They were at the mercy of you know the these little house systems were out in a ball ballpark, and nobody could even hear them. And he says that got all of a sudden that got old really quick. And pretty soon he said, "Hey, hey, we want to play our music. Would you shut up?" You know that was the attitude, and they got where they they just hated it. And I could relate to that. You know, pretty soon you just feel like you'd, you'd be in a, in a zoo. You know, people looking at you through behind the bars and and throwing you peanuts. And uh, so uh, it was uh, it was very interesting. He he showed us, took us around, showed us some of the air vents that the girls tried to s- crawl through to sneak into the see if they could see the Beatles and what they were recording there. Great, it was great. And then and then not too long later, we met down in uh, Los Angeles at Paramount uh, Picture Films. Uh, they had a western town there, and we shot the video. So, I, are we good buddies? Do we send Christmas cards? No, but I got a chance to meet him. <laughs> and that is very cool. <laughs> yes, it is. So, is there a driving force to your work? Is there like a greater purpose to what you you do that that keeps you moving forward? Oh, well, absolutely. There, there certainly is, and uh, I've been thinking about it a lot the last year or two. But probably because I, just, you know, I'm 73 years old, and uh, you know, I started in this band when I was 23, 
and just a kid. And I had to drop out of college. I was almost finished being an engineer, industrial engineer. And, and, and so I thought I'd do it for a few years and then, you know, it would fade away and I'd go back to college. And I never dreamed, you know, I'd be 50 years in the same place. And Buck allowed me to wear these different hats and we became close, we became friends. I have this loyalty to Buck. He's been gone a long time now, but I'm here every day running the foundation and it has all his intellectual properties. In other words, all his masters, his music, his publishing. I license that. I take care of it. But there's also buildings full of things. There's guitars. There's cars. There's stuff. There's stuff that has to be dealt with. Uh, hundreds of boxes of documents and all these things that, that down the road, when I'm gone, no one's going to know what to do with it. You know, I'm I'm kind of... The, the guy that, that they don't know that they come in the last gym, you know, he, he'll remember why, why do we have that? What is that? Is it worth anything? What should we do with it? And so I'm kind of like the person that's, you know, getting old and, and at their house, you know, and they, they kind of want to deal with all their stuff so their kids don't have to deal with it, get all their affairs in order. I'm trying to do that for Buck. And uh, that's important to me. That's why I don't want to retire yet. Besides, I, I wouldn't retire well. I, I've got to be doing something. So I, uh, I come into the office. It's like my family here. A lot of these people have been here for many decades. And chip away and, you know, try to deal with these things. Selling stuff, uh, giving stuff, figuring out what to do with the archives. Uh, one thing at a time. And, of course, we've got Buck Owens Crystal Palace to deal with. That's a huge thing. And that's very unsettling right now, whenever that's going to open up again. So... Yeah, there's plenty to do every day. What does Buck Owens mean to you? Uh, I like the idea that uh, we've talked about uh, about the Beatles. I thought that when Buck came on the scene, Buck did in country music exactly what Beatles did to pop music. We came out of a huge, big uh, production, rock production with tons and tons of instruments and big sounds. And and the Beatles came along and opened the door for a, a, a four-piece group you know every you could hear every instrument right in your face not overdubbed and overarranged and overprocessed just good clean music buck did exactly the same thing when nashville was doing the the smooth country music with all the strings they they called it country country politan and um, country music was sort of losing its spark in his life and uh they're trying to cross over and sell more records to the pop people so it was taking its toll on the hard country. So when Buck came along with this hardcore group, the Buckaroos, small group, he I think he was fresh and breath, breath of fresh air. And I liked the fact that he was a rebel and that he didn't pick up and move to Nashville with all the rest of them. And he says, no, I'm going to do it in Bakersfield. And, and he thumbed his nose at him. A lot of people in Nashville did not like Buck Owens at that. You know, that's long gone now. But at the time, it was like... A, uh, what you know? You got to come to Nashville and use our recording musicians. And Buck says, "No, I got a good band. I'll use them and do it in my own studio, and I'll write my own songs." And what really made him mad is he was terribly successful at it. <laughs> he he did some things on the charts that had not been done. Did you know that that uh, "Love's Going to Live Here" went to number one? I think it's I think it that was stayed at number one for sixteen weeks. Wow. Do you realize do you realize how many Nashville records did not hit number one during that time because he was 
hog in the number one spot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that when uh, My Heart Skips a Beat went to number one, you know what the number two song was at that time? It was the B side of My Heart Skips a Beat, which happened to be Together Again. <laughs> and then the next week, they flip-flopped. Together Again was number one. My Heart Skips a Beat was number two. The third week, they flip-flopped again back. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was frustrating the heck out of the people in Nashville. They weren't wild about that. Yeah, he was doing amazing things, getting on TV shows that no, had never had country music before. You know, Ed Sullivan show and all the first show I I played on when I joined the Buckaroos within the month was the Ed Sullivan show. I was I was pretty knocked out. I thought that was a big deal. So anyway, he he did he he broke down walls and did things and. Uh, I respected that, enjoyed that, was proud to be working with him. He was difficult to work with sometimes, and uh, I thought, okay, that's cool. He's the way he is, because that's what it took to be who he is. I get it. Well, when you consider all of these things that have made up your life, being on the Ed Sullivan Show, being around people like Ringo Starr, having a song you wrote recorded by people like Tom Jones, being able to play with someone like Buck Owens, a legend in music, what is the best thing about being Jim Shaw? Well, that variety. <laughs> it was never boring. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he, uh, we, he used to call it giving me a new hat, but when he bought, he owned a lot of radio stations, but I remember when he bought his first TV station, so, okay, Jim, you're going to get a new hat. You've got to learn about, you got to learn about TV now. And it was always uh, new adventures, new things to do. And never a dull moment. I, 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 I couldn't be luckier that every morning I got to get up and look forward to going to work. That's, that's a, a gift uh, that's, uh, uh, that any guy would have to be say it's right up there at the top, doing what you love. I always like to end the show. I give the guest the stage. It's not limited to music, but for anyone who's tuned in, totally open-ended. What would you say to them? Wow. Uh, you've asked so many good questions. I think I've said everything I know. But <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, think, I think it's the, uh, the fact that I've gone through my life, a lot of times when you get stressed out, there has been a lot of stress in my job. And, and uh, I've kind of had a mantra and that I go back to all the time. And... Uh, and it's every time something comes up, I say, will this matter in a hundred years? And uh, it's amazing what that's gotten me through. You know, it's, it's really, so you got some crabgrass. Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's something everybody can take to heart. Well, Jim Shaw, thank you very much for making the time to speak with me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been, a, uh, been fun for me, too. You're a great interview subject. Well, thank you. All right, sir. Well, have a wonderful day. I appreciate it. Okay, the same to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.